next guest is with the Ottawa Bureau of the Globe and Mail, who specializes in finance activities and financial subjects, and who wrote a column just a couple of days ago uh, entitled, Business Leaders Urge Ottawa to Ease Conditions for 75% Wage Subsidy. A real pleasure to welcome Bill Curry to the program. Good morning, Bill. Morning, Sterling. Your, your weather report sounds a lot nicer than Ottawa's. You're getting some warm weather there. That sounds good. Uh, before we dive into all of this uh, uh, stuff about uh, the two uh, wage or the two benefit packages that'll be offered to Canadians effective tomorrow morning, Bill, a quick personal question for you: You and Amy live on which, the Ontario or Quebec side of the Ottawa River? <laughs> yes, um, we're on the Ontario side, but my wife works on the Quebec side, so. She's been working from home, which is good. But, it's, yeah, it's, cra- it's crazy. Like, uh, Ottawa and Gatineau are essentially one city, and people cross the bridge all the time. Tons of public servants work on one side and live on the other. Sure. They've essentially put up a border patrol the Quebec uh, government has, screening Ontario residents going to Quebec. And a lot of Ontario residents have, uh, you know, essentially cottage country as on the Quebec side. Sure. And they're stopping people from going to their cottages, that kind of thing. So do Ontarians um, like your wife who work who lives in Ontario but works in Quebec and I know she's working from home as are the vast number of working people everywhere but were she to go to work would she not be allowed across the bridge is it that serious these days No she would be allowed she'd have to show um her work pass oh, okay. and same for us uh, if we wanted to cross we're going to have to show our uh, our press passes and the uh, the big question today is is on uh here we are Sunday Quebec has shut down all Sunday shopping of any kind, and so um, so they'll be coming to Ontario. If we're going to get an influx of Quebecers coming over here to grocery shop, so there's no screening going that way. Ontario's not screening out Quebecers. It's only one one way. It's Interesting. Really the bizarre. only reason the only reason I raise it, Bill, on a Sunday morning in Vancouver is a lot of us are hearing this. I mean, we've seen pictures, but you know, it's sort of impacting. There's there are now officially interprovincial boundaries in Canada. This is this is a, a a departure to say the very least. Let's zoom in on those millions of Canadians, Bill who first thing tomorrow morning are going to try to apply for either the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy or the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. Which of the two is likely to receive more attention online and every other way tomorrow morning? Um, I I could be wrong. The Emergency Response Benefit, I think, is the one that's going to be ready first because the wage subsidy still has to go through Parliament. So we're going to have a setting of Parliament this week, it hasn't been scheduled to to finalize the the wage subsidy, so that's that's not ready yet, and it's not going to be available for applications until it's a little unclear. But they're saying three to six weeks before people can apply to that. So that's one of the controversies about the wage subsidy. Interesting. In the interim, what we have is this um, uh, emergency benefit that is much broader. It's it's one of the most. The idea is uh, it's supposed to be easier to access than even employment insurance. So. Even if, for instance, you're home because uh, you know your kids are home because school's closed, and for that reason you can't go to work, that can apply to you. You can apply to the but the, the CERB, it's called. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I believe that's about five hundred bucks a week if you qualify. Uh, the issue with that is though your income has to drop down to zero. It can't be five dollars. It can't be ten bucks. If you got one small contract. You can't apply to the CERB. So that's been the main criticism of that is that it's, it's hard and fast. Your income has to be zero, but there is a pretty broad range of categories that you could fall onto uh, to qualify for that. So 
I think for a lot of people, the CERB is probably the best option. It pays a little less than the wage subsidy. The wage subsidy is going to max out to probably eight forty-seven a week okay. versus five hundred. But it's broader, and businesses could use the CERB as well. And I think that was the government's original idea: was that a business could furlough their employees so they're not technically laid off, and then people could apply for the CERB. Uh, and then in the interim, there's this negotiation going on in Parliament about what to do with this wage subsidy. Interesting. So, Bill, the Parliament will be recalled sometime later this week in order to pass the legislation around the emergency wage subsidy. Is that fixing its own mistakes, essentially, Bill? Uh, did they have this uh, in the initial legislation, but were there some uh, missing dots to be connected, or was it just not complete in the first place? Well, the opposition says this is the government fixing its own mistakes. The government hasn't put it quite that way. Of course. Uh, what has happened is about, uh, well, we had March 18 was an initial package that had a 10% wage subsidy. And right off the bat, business groups were saying that wasn't enough. And some of the opposition parties picked that up. Then about a week and a half ago, we had a parliamentary session to uh, adopt that 10% wage subsidy and some other stimulus spending. And uh, there was some drama around that. They, mm-hmm. was, uh, they worked all night and had to, because there was uh, some power provisions the opposition opposed. The government pulled that out. So, But in the end, a bill passed about a week and a half ago. And the uh, business groups were still not happy with that. So then two days later, Trudeau said, we're going to boost the wage subsidy to 75%. Right. And then there was still some uncertainty over the details. They kept saying, well, the details will come the next day, and then they'd push it off another day. Then around last Wednesday, we got some of the details. And the one detail that's really uh, concerning a lot of uh, business owners and business groups is that it's a hard and fast rule. You have to be able to show your business revenue has declined 30% in, say, March month to month. So March of this year compared to March of last year. Oh, I see. Yeah, so particularly a lot of high-tech groups or They'll say, you know, you might have a pretty small company that may have only started a year and a half ago, so your revenue last year might have been fairly low, and then you'd ramped it up over the next six, seven, or eight months. And then, so they're saying, like, that that rule doesn't really apply for a whole wide range of business reasons to specific circumstances. It causes a lot of headaches. So all weekend, public servants have been working on the details. Uh, business groups are trying to lobby to get the uh, those criteria softened. And at, as we speak Sunday morning, we still don't even know if Parliament's coming back Monday or if it's Tuesday. I assume it's one of those two days, but uh, that'll be the big question uh, if we get a chance to ask the Prime Minister today is if he is going to agree to changes uh, before the bill comes before Parliament. Interesting stuff. Now, I've got to let you go, Bill, because I know you have to go and get ready because you're going to attend the Prime Minister's address uh, in, in about an hour's time uh, at 11.15 your time. We'll take it live here on CKNW. We'll be listening for your question. Uh, do you expect him, by the way, final question, do you expect the Prime Minister to make that announcement about Parliament's recall this morning without being asked by the press? Do you think it's going to be part of today's announcements? It's possible. He usually tries to have one piece of new information, and that is uh, something on the horizon that he could talk about. I, um, so it's a decent guess. If I get the chance, I'll, I'll ask him about it. Um, one other issue, obviously, is this dispute with uh, the U.S. government and masks mm-hmm. and the, the president trying 
to not have uh, masks imported to Canada. So uh, I think that's probably going to be like it was yesterday, a big topic of, uh, of the questions. Interesting stuff. We'll be listening for your questions, Bill Curry. Thanks very much for joining us. Our warm regards to your family as well. The folks at Surrey, Hospital, Surrey Memorial Hospital have set up a COVID-19 response fund. This is part of the response that hospitals and support workers and community members all over Canada have been trying to organize. And in Surrey, they got very organized and set up the COVID-19 Response Fund. Here to talk about that is the president and CEO of the Surrey Hospital Foundation, a good friend of CKNW. It's a pleasure to welcome back Jane Adams. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Sterling. It's a, nice to speak to you again. We spoke a few months ago on Vancouver Consumer, uh, and that was also about a fundraising effort. But let's zoom right in on the uh, response fund, the COVID-19 response fund at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Talk to us about where it came from and then the phenomenal success you're enjoying, Jane. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak to your listeners about it. Um, initially, uh, when we started to see COVID-19 present in our city and our province, our initial thought as a fundraising organization was that people were so hard hit um, by the uh, social distancing measures that we would probably not be doing fundraising throughout the, the, the period of the pandemic. Yeah. But mm-hmm. An amazing thing uh, happened. Well, first, the hospital uh, approached us with some needs they had, uh, specifically around supporting the frontline staff, but also our phones started to ring and we started to receive um, a lot of messages of support and offers of help from the community. So we established a COVID-19 fund, um, and within the first, I don't know, five to six days, we received over $70,000 wow. in support, which is wonderful. Yes. In five days? Yes, yes, and money continues to come in from all sources, individuals, organizations, companies, and not just offers of, of money. I should add that we realize some individuals uh, you know, they're not in a position to make uh, cash donations, but lots of companies came forward and offered anything they had. If they had uh, available space in the event we needed it, companies came forward. If they had uh, portable bathroom showers, uh, and we're keeping an inventory of all of those things as well in the event that if and when our hospital or the health system needs it. For instance, uh, last night, a general contracting company that works a lot with the hospital, um, KDS, they uh, heard that our ER nurses who have to stand outside in the cold, um, uh, we, they needed heated jackets. So they went out and purchased heated jackets for our ER nurses and delivered them to the front line. Fantastic. So our nurses who are there yeah, screening uh, patients have... Um, uh, can be safe and warm. Interesting. Now, so so Jane, a lot of this, and, and it, what a what a wonderful position for you and the rest of the board of the Surrey Hospital Foundation to be in to to start thinking about this, mostly because you had to. People were calling up, going, "How can we help? Got some money here? Maybe some goods and services? What have you got going on?" And so you pretty much had to get something going on almost immediately. We did. You know, the city of Surrey and the the community in general has been very resilient, uh, very creative, and uh, very generous. One of the other initiatives we've uh, put in place, and we started it on um, 
Friday is a meal program to deliver hot, nourishing food to our frontline staff. And mm-hmm. so we anticipate over the next uh, month alone, we'll deliver uh, over 35,000 meals uh, to our frontline staff and we'll pour over 17,000 cups of coffee. And again, we're able to do that because of the generosity of um, our community. Uh, now, uh, this is all, of course, being very wisely uh, directed towards uh, assisting frontline staff, those people who are uh, literally at the tip of the spear. Do the funds in any way support COVID-19 patients or people who are presumed to have COVID-19? Absolutely. They do, Sterling. Um So uh, the funds will be used to purchase any uh, capital equipment we need uh, during the pandemic. Uh, We are fortunate the province and the um, federal government are contributing quite significant amounts of money to uh, equipment and PPE. Uh, And so we're working very closely with the hospital leadership to identify things that will not be paid for Mm -hmm. um, by government funds to ensure every cent of the charitable money goes to things that Uh, would otherwise not be available. Another example um, of something we use the COVID-19 funds for would be uh, TV. Now, you might say that's a bit odd, but for uh, COVID patients who are uh, not uh, in ICU and they have to spend long times uh, in quarantine and can't have visitors, Mm -hmm. we've turned on the TVs for those uh, patients through their stay with us, so they can stay connected to the outside world. Uh, we're purchasing iPads so people who can communicate when they're in isolation uh, with their loved ones as well. We're looking at some uh, purchasing equipment to help with some virtual health solutions for COVID patients who are isolated mm-hmm. or once they return home. So there's a myriad of things that the fund will will support. And I would say what we thought we needed a week ago may look very different in 14 days. It's quite a fluid situation and the needs continue to change. And with the cash on hand that provides the foundation the flexibility to be able to move in whichever direction is deemed to be the most important. Absolutely. And we can assure your listeners and all of our donors, we're working very, very closely with the hospital leadership to ensure that the charitable money is spent where it's needed, when it's needed to support the frontline staff and COVID patients. Jane, where do people go to help out? I mean, they obviously they know your number, but where if they're listening now and going, well, I can help too, where do they go? So we would direct people uh, to surreyhospitalfoundation.ca very much uh, uh, do uh, willing to help you with that surrey hospital foundation.ca there's the ceo jane adams excellent work jane good to speak to you again wonderful thank you and thank you to your uh, listeners and thanks to all those frontline staff and first responders and people on the front thank here, you here here indeed it's taking a look at a website called safecarebc.ca quote covid19 has led to a severe shortage of protective equipment for healthcare workers they need this equipment to protect themselves and provide safe quality care without it they're at higher risk of injury or illness the workers are on the front line of the covid19 pandemic and they need our support today this is something from safecarebc the CEO of which is Jennifer Lyle, who joins us this morning. Jennifer, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Jennifer. Tell us about Safe Care BC. This is another spontaneous organization receiving enormous public support. When did it start and how long ago? 
Yeah, well, Safe Care BC was established first in 2014, and um, essentially what we are is the Workplace Health and Safety Association for the continuing care sector. So we cover all the uh, the non-health authority long-term care homes and the home care agencies across the province, and our big focus is really on keeping those continuing care workers safe. Mm-hmm. So the uh, as we've come to understand uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic, Jennifer, uh, those workers in those senior care communities uh, work, uh, do their jobs for, relatively speaking, quite low pay and under the current conditions, rather high risk. And that's why we wanted to start Operation Protect, because you know, as the safety association for this sector, um, we were very much aware of the challenges that people were having around personal protective equipment or PPE. I mean, you heard Dr. Bonnie Henry herself say, this is our, our wicked problem. Yep. So, so that's why we wanted to, to start Operation Protect as a way to respond to those needs and also provide the public with an opportunity to help support our healthcare workers on the front lines. Yeah, it's interesting. We were just talking with Jane Adams over at Sir Memorial and their hospital foundation, and they've got this COVID response fund, and they've got over 70000 in cash, plus all sorts of food and all sorts of other, uh, you know, in, in, uh, by way of generations of support in, in, in kind. And again, they began this operation as literally a, as a necessary response to an outpouring from the public, Jennifer, saying, well, you know, we're kind of cooped up and we're not allowed to do much, but by gosh, we sure want to help. How can we help? So up you come with Safe Care BC and your drop-off business. So tell us about how people uh, can connect personal protective equipment, PPEs, to deserving workers in the senior care sector uh, and do it all carefully and safely. For sure. So um, it's really simple. And one thing I'll note, too, is that although our focus originally was the continuing care sector, we've worked with the province so that these supplies are actually going back into the provincial supply chain. So okay. they're going out to healthcare workers across the province and across the sector. So not just seniors care. Mm-hmm. Um, so all you have to do is go to safecarebc.ca slash operation protect. You tell us what you have, how much you have of it. And then um, if, you can, if you can, we'll assign you a drop-off time and a location. So we have um, the city of Surrey and the city of uh, Vancouver are helping support us in this. So we have one in, in South Vancouver and one in the Guilford area. Or alternatively, if you're not able to come to us because you're self-isolating or whatnot, sure. we will come to you. We'll come and pick up your donation. Uh, I see. Now, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about the outpouring of donations that have happened since you ramped up this current request. It's been pretty incredible. So when we started it, we had no idea what to expect. Mm-hmm. We had, you know, we had some organizations like the BC Care Providers and the City of Surrey, City of Vancouver, um, Big Steel Box, U-Haul, and Tahoe Industries coming forward and saying, we will help you get this off the ground. Um, but we didn't know what the public reaction was going to be. And to date, we've had over 280,000 donations of equipment. Um, and that includes some really much needed things like we've had, you know, over 38,000 surgical masks. We've had close to 32,000 N95 masks. And, and some of these donations have been big and some of them have been small. Like people have had surgical masks and, and N95 sitting in their first aid kits. Right. And you know, come forward and donated them. So it's been pretty incredible. I'm wondering, Jennifer, a lot of those masks and other similar supplies, I'll bet you a lot of them are coming from dentists who have an abundance of supply because that's part of what they do. And except they're not doing much these days. And again, like everyone else, still really uh, feeling the need to contribute in any way. 
Yeah, you know, we've had dental offices come forward. We've also had an auto body record come forward. You wouldn't think auto body records have N95s, but they gave us an entire uh, pallet full. Um, we've had organizations like IKEA come forward. Um, we've had people go into, you know, the, the, some of the schools, their first aid kits have surgical masks in them. We've had, uh, you know, a Boy Scout organization come forward. So it's, it's come from all areas, and it's been really cool to see the support. I'll bet. I'll bet you it's very heartwarming stuff. Now, you were talking about the, the, the ways by which individuals can get involved, and it's either a drop-off, and you've got, what, South Vancouver and Surrey locations, and if that's simply not physically possible, you can also do pickups. Where, where are the drop-offs? Where's the South Vancouver? Where are the Surrey drop-offs? What we're doing is we are, we're assigning those drop-offs um, as people come forward, just so that we can crowd control a little bit. Sure. But the South Vancouver one is close to Global Carpet and Hardwoods. And then the one in, um, in Surrey is, in the, is close to Guilford Mall. So they're both in those areas. Oh, okay. Lots of access, easy to get in and out, and uh, not a lot of, uh, uh, of crowding, uh, because that's also part of the process. This has to be safely done, doesn't it? Absolutely. And so that's something we take, as you would imagine, very seriously. So um, whether we're doing a, a pickup from your, your home or your business, or if you're coming to do a drop-off, we put in some extra measures just to make sure that everybody is safe and nobody's getting exposed. Jennifer, we had a conversation a week or two ago with the brewmaster at Central City Brewing, and they were converting, rolling over one of their production lines uh, from, I believe it was gin, uh, into hand sanitizer. Uh, and uh, already looking forward to working with the city of Surrey to distribute that product. Are you uh, getting other, shall we say, homemade uh, uh, contributions as well? No, it's actually, it's funny you mentioned the distilleries. We did just have a distillery um, this past week donate uh, several liters worth of hand sanitizer. So the, the one thing that we do ask, and the distilleries have gone through the process to get the proper certification, yes. but we do ask that um, the donated goods meet a certain criteria. And if you go to our website, so again, safecarebc.ca slash operation protect, um, we put all the details up there so you don't have to go hunting. You can figure out what we'll take. Uh, okay. And now, uh, just to clarify, you've directed now two or three times in this brief conversation, Jennifer, you've directed people to your website. That would suggest to me that this is an online uh, focus, that people, uh, I mean, you can call for information and so on, but in terms of arranging drop-offs or contributions, that should happen online, correct? Yes. So we do have a, a toll-free number for people to call in to ask questions. Um, and again, that information is all on our website. But the reason why we're taking them through our website is that way we're able to connect with the folks over at the provincial supply chain. And we have a good um, understanding of the inventory that's coming in. And that way we can cross-check that with what we're able to drop off. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, we sit here and we watch the next-door neighbors in 50 states literally battling each other in, in a fist fight for urgently needed supplies. And there's no coordination. There's no leadership above that. So it's a bit of a gong show. And it's nice to hear that in, in British Columbia, at least, we have that extensive uh, coordination effort going on so that there is a central point that understands where everything is. Yeah, and I think for us, that's really important. You, you hit the nail on the head. We're all in this together. And regardless as to what our focus is or to where we come from, we're all in this fight together. And our goal right now is really to support our healthcare workers who are at the front lines of this thing. 
So all you need to do, friends, is go to safecarebc slash operation protect or just go to safecarebc and click on the operation protect button. And all the information is there so you can help healthcare workers help us. Jennifer Lyle, we wish you considerable and continued success with this excellent effort. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Our next guest is uh, the executive director of the Vancouver East Cultural Center. Her name is Heather Redfern, and Heather made a very emotional presentation to the city of Vancouver just a few days ago with respect to getting some funding for the arts and particularly her organization, uh, her, her venue, the Vancouver East Cultural Center. Heather Redfern is with us this morning. Hello, Heather. Hi. It's, How are you today? Uh, well, I'm fine, thanks. Uh, you put on uh, quite a performance on Tuesday uh, in front of the mayor and uh, uh, absentee city councillors respecting that n- need for physical distancing, but you made a pretty convincing argument for the arts. Give our, our listeners this morning, Heather, uh, a sample of the kinds of uh, points you were trying to make, and you got pretty emotional at point, at, at several uh, junctures in your presentation. What, uh, what were you trying to improve? press upon city council? Uh, just the extent um, that uh, this this uh, situation has uh, affected the arts um, and artists. We are in a situation where 100% of our revenue has been basically uh, shut down. Um, we, we are an industry that lives very close to the bone anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we have somewhere upwards of 90% unemployment in the arts right now. And uh, that unemployment uh, is made up of people who are on the lower scale, pay scale anyway, and are generally uh, financially more vulnerable in our society. So uh, it's had a massive impact. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, we shouldn't all assume that all of the arts and the arts organizations and the artists are going to be able to just go back to the way things were and that they will be there for all of us when this is over. Yeah, Heather, it's also important to remember, too, that a lot of people subsidize their artistic endeavors, whether it's acting or whatever element of performance or creativity they're involved in. Many of them subsidize their passion with uh, with working, and a lot of that working is involved in the hospitality business. There's a lot of servers and cooks who are performers and actors and players and so on, so they've been double whammied, haven't they? They certainly have, and, you know, at the Cult, uh, we use a lot of that casual labor as well for our front of house and our bar and our box office, and, and many of those uh, workers are people that are have their own artistic practice and, and are doing those jobs, you know, to pay the rent. And as you say, they also work in the hospitality industry, sure. so it's, compl- it's, it's devastating. So it basically went... F- to zero income overnight. So what sort of response did you get from the city? Now, first of all, did you ask for a specific amount, Heather? So the grants from the city were our grants that the city makes to the arts in Vancouver every year. Right. So this was not special to the COVID-19 situation. And the timeline was the same as, uh, as uh, happens every year. So we just wanted to make sure that the city uh, was aware of how badly these funds were needed this year. 
they're always badly needed, but especially this year, and uh, and how the how the arts really needed them in a timely fashion, just to make it through the next few weeks. So now, the clearly the your your presentation had an impact because at the end of the presentation, followed by the obligatory debate and uh, in council uh, voting and so on, uh, I understand my understanding, Heather. You can correct me if I'm wrong here, but they unanimously approved the renewal of the existing funding. Correct. That's correct. Yes, they did, which was. Very gratifying uh, to hear the the city councillors uh, all spoke eloquently about the importance of the arts in the city, and uh, it was uh, it was very heartening to have that vote. Yeah, and and I think you know you sit back and you go arts. Oh, come on, how important is that? But you know, here we are, all housebound, Heather. I mean, we're ordered to stay home by no less than the prime minister and many many others in, behind him, and so here we are with way too much time on our hands. And suddenly realizing that if you don't think the arts matter anymore, imagine being alone or isolated or cooped up without music, movies. Mm-hmm. Poetry, novels, paintings, and the list goes on and on. And suddenly, it doesn't take, really, it doesn't take brain uh, uh, experts to realize how much impact. I mean, mo- many of us, we're supposed to be, for example, this morning, Heather, we're supposed to be talking about how well the Canucks are going to do in the playoffs. Their last, <laughs> their last regular season game was, last, was supposed to have been last night. They were doing well. So here we were this morning, supposed to be over our coffee going, well, how deep are they going to go in the playoffs? Well, they're not going anywhere. There's not, nothing's going on. But... This is how much disruption has taken place, and I, for one, am missing sports terribly. A lot of other people are missing Rick and Rick Fortchuk on an hour ago going, well, you got to go to Netflix if you want to go to the movies. That's the only option these days. And so for people who are looking for artistic outings, they simply, mm-hmm. they simply don't happen anymore. So what's the artistic community doing while also cooped up? It's- there's a lot of uh, really great content being live streamed online. So musicians are doing concerts from their kitchens. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are play readings online. So there are a lot of uh, arts organizations that have responded to this. We, uh, we for example, did a live stream of the production uh, that was supposed to be on in the first week of 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 the outbreak uh, or the uh, shutdown here in Vancouver. So if people are interested, they should go online, check out the National Arts Centre, check out their favourite favourite arts organisation or festival. All of us are directing people to those live stream performances. And uh, it's... uh, it's really amazing to see what artists are doing out there online right now. So it's quite exciting. Well, it's not only amazing and exciting, it's also kind of fun because, you know, these are very creative people, clearly, who are making it up on the fly and who haven't lost their sense of humor uh, and in many cases are being enormously entertaining. And certainly that's what I'm finding just, you know, you start, you, if you do Google living room concerts, it's amazing how, how long that list turns out to be. That's right, and you can see work uh, and performances from artists from all over the world as well. So it's not just local artists, it's not just Canadian artists, it's uh, artists around the world who are putting some some really fun content online, and, and I think we all need that right now. 208 
arts and cultural institutions are covered by the $6.2 million grant that was renewed by Vancouver City Council this week after your pitch to them, Heather. How much of that $6.2 million goes to your organization, the Vancouver East Cultural Centre? We receive $150,000 a year through that operating grant program from the city. And our budget is $4 million. So it's not a large portion of our budget. But right now, it is all the money we have to be able to operate on. So it's very critical. And do you rely uh, in, in good times on, obviously, the, the box office helps, but uh, I would imagine that there are a lot of corporate sponsors involved in back, back rolling the, the arts at the Cultch. Not so much. Our largest source of income is ticket sales. Okay. So, uh, yes, donations and sponsorships are part of our mix. But really, uh, it's it's ticket sales that uh, are the backbone of our revenue stream. So, obviously, that uh, that source of income doesn't exist right now. So, uh, we are doing everything we possibly can to prepare a season for next year, so that we'll be there for uh, the citizens of. The Lower Mainland when this is all over. Yeah, and I guess there are a lot of organizations that are are just having to do that, just to put everything on hold. Is there a website that you could recommend to our listeners on a Sunday morning, Heather? Again, going back to the idea of, well, here we are with way too much time on our hands. What's out there to watch? Especially Vancouver stuff that maybe we've never heard about or seen before. Well, a good good place to start is Dan Mangan runs a series called uh, Side Door. Okay. series of uh, small concerts, so I would definitely check that out. Um, I, as they say, the National Art Centre in Ottawa is running a series of play readings and other performance, so I would definitely uh, check that out. Good stuff. Um, Soul Pepper Theatre as well in Toronto is running a series of play readings, so there's lots out there, and, and depending on what your interest is, you know, there are also dancers who are giving uh, dance lessons online. Great stuff, um, Heather. Got to leave it there. Got to run, but I appreciate okay. your time and the work you did on behalf of your community in front of City Council. Outstanding stuff, Heather. Well done. Headline the other day, Surrey councillors say halt policing transition as over 2,000 workers have been laid off. Linda Annis is one of those Surrey councillors joining us on the line right now. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being with us today, Linda. I got to correct myself. I had the number wrong. I said 160 million. The cost of transitioning to a local police force from the RCMP has actually been pegged at 129 million. That is the number you're familiar with, correct? Well, that's the number that uh, is being floated out there. Quite frankly, we don't know exactly what it's going to cost. Uh, there's a lot of uh, missing numbers, a lot of missing facts in the police report. Um, that, I would say, is the very minimum that it's going to cost the residents of Surrey. Okay, so the city has laid off 1,900 part-time or auxiliary workers and 140 full-time employees because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it is not uh, too unusual to imagine uh, down the road even more employees possibly losing their situation. So what you and your colleagues on city council who are like-minded are saying basically, Linda, is really bad timing, Surrey. We're in the midst of a crisis right now. We need to be supporting our staff. We need to be supporting the residents of the city, our first responders. 
uh, our healthcare workers. We need to be focusing on them and what can we do to help them out through the tough economic times. And we also need to be focusing, once we get through this, how are we going to rebuild the economy in Surrey? We've got a lot of work to do, and to be contemplating changing police force at this time just doesn't make sense to me. And yet it seems to be, now correct me if I'm wrong, Linda, because it's, it seems to be a fairly fluid dynamic in terms of public support. Certainly around the council table, the majority has provided uh, a, a way, a cleared the way for this transition from the Mounties to a local force. What's, what appetite do you sense today for this transition going forward, generally speaking in Surrey? Well, I can say that by and large, the residents of Surrey do not support this transition. Uh, they, there is more than 41 or 42,000 signatures saying that they want to keep the RCMP. And quite frankly, the RCMP are doing a phenomenal job for us. We're asking them right now to be putting their lives at risk as well as their family members. And we're also saying to them, thanks, but uh, we're going to switch police forces. That's just not right. Well, now you got the province involved here too, Linda. Now, because the 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 request, the the democratic process has unfolded at the local level. The city of Surrey, uh, in its wisdom, has made the decision to go forward with this transition, and of course, at, at, with the approval of the province. So now they've sought and received the approval from the province. Uh, the minister responsible, Mike Farnworth, uh, is, is is given it the thumbs up. So, have you heard any change? in terms of mood or uh, thought from the province on this? This process has not been transparent at all. Uh, Oftentimes, councillors are getting facts through the media. We're not getting them through City Hall, which is fundamentally wrong. I know the mayor says that uh, when he won the last election, that that gave him the mandate to transition from the RCMP to the city police force. That was not what people were voting for. There was a multitude of reasons why uh, he got into to office. When 42,000 people are saying they don't want to switch, I think we need to stop and take a sober second thought about this. And particularly at this time, it's wrong to be spending taxpayers' money. We should be spending it on things that are going to make their lives better right now. So many people have lost their jobs and they're struggling to make mortgage payments, to to even put food on the table. And we need to be providing assistance and not spending money foolishly. Linda, from a from a councillor, from a you know the inside baseball numbers here, and most of us don't. Does the city of Surrey have some kind of contingency fund, as most cities I do believe have? And if so, is it significant enough to help weather this COVID storm? Absolutely not. Uh, We are closing uh, rec centers. We're closing all sorts of revenue uh, sources for the city. We're going to have some really tough economic times ahead of us in Surrey, as are most of the cities. And we've also put a cap on increasing property taxes, which is a good thing. But at this point in time, people are going to be struggling to even be able to pay their property taxes, uh, whether or not there's a cap on it or not. So revenue for the city is going to be short. Definitely. We need to be putting it on things that are important to support our residents and build our economy once we get through this horrific pandemic.
Now, uh, as far as the uh, police forces themselves, now the Mounties, of course, are busy, as you say. They're the, they're part of the first response team, and they're doing some pretty dangerous, pretty important work right now. But through their spokespeople, has the RCMP had anything to say about this, or are they just keeping an arm's distance from all the politics? Well, it has become a bit of a political minefield, and what the RCMP have been saying is that really what they need is more members, and we know they need more members. Excuse me, if you look at uh, the city of Vancouver, they've got 1,400-plus members, and our population is 85% of that of Vancouver, and geographically as big as Vancouver, Burnaby, and Richmond, yet we currently only have 843 members. That doesn't make sense. And with the new policing plan, they're actually recommending that we have less members. They're recommending we have 803 And we've all heard, certainly in terms of problems with gang violence and all sorts of other things in recent years in Surrey, uh, of the need for uh, aggressively staffing out the police ranks. uh, And uh, this transition to the local force doesn't seem to include any capability to do that very important expansion work. Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to point out that, yes, we do have a gang problem in Surrey, but it's a problem that's rampant through the lower mainland, and we need to be working together on that. And you're absolutely right. There are not enough police members in Surrey to be able to do all the things that we ask them to do. We've stretched them to the limit, and quite honestly, they're doing a fabulous job. Um, And particularly in these times, they're even stepping up more than uh, to help through this pandemic. Linda, you talked about a, 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 a petition that currently has over 41,000 signatures. Uh, is this an exercise in futility? Is this transition a done deal? Or do you feel that, that it could still be uh, held back? Well, I think when 41,000 plus people say they don't want to change, I think the city and the province needs to step back and take a sober second thought and at the very least do a referendum. I know the province has said they don't want to do that, but I'm calling on them to do it. And whatever the decision is is made, we need to move forward with it, but not at this time. This is absolutely the wrong time to be doing a transition of police. Now, for like-minded people uh, like yourself and uh, the 41,000 others who have signed that petition, people hearing about it for the first time this morning, where can they go and, and uh, add their signature to it should they feel so inclined? Now, I'll have to get that uh, uh, number for you, but I can certainly um, provide that to you. And if the members can check um, the NW website, I'd be more than happy to provide that to you. Excellent. Okay, well, well you can just uh, shoot it to us, and uh, Julie will put it up in a few minutes. Linda Annis, thank you for this. We appreciate a little time on a, getting up early on a Sunday morning to do this very important uh, messaging with us. Thank you very much for having me. There's a Surrey City Councillor, Linda Annis, and we'll get that uh, information about how to connect with the petition. Should you feel like adding your name to it, we'll put it up on the website as soon as Linda provides it to us. It's 842. This past Wednesday was World Autism Awareness Day, and a, a local professor at Simon Fraser University conducted a webinar on Wednesday entitled Autism, Anxiety, and COVID-19. 
This was a webinar directed at parents of kids on the autism spectrum, joined by Professor Grace Yorochi, who is a professor of psychology at Simon Fraser University and also the director of the Autism and Developmental Disorders Lab. Professor Yorochi, Grace, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, tell us a little bit about, first of all, uh, you, you conducted a webinar on World Autism Awareness Day, and that's one of the reasons we really wanted to speak to you this morning. But let's uh, go back to the week that was and talk about uh, last Wednesday, World Autism Awareness Day. How, uh, how did you do, how did we do this year in terms of elevating public consciousness? Well, um, with all this going on with COVID-19, it is a little, little difficult for um, people to focus their attention on autism. Sure. But I think we, we tried to bring the issue of anxiety, which all of us are having right now, and autism. And many uh, children and adults with autism uh, actually are more naturally prone to be anxious. So this was a kind of a, a, a way to show that, um, you know, individuals with autism right now are going through a much harder time than most of us because of their um, tendency to actually be anxious and that this has really elevated that anxiety. For I can them. imagine too, Grace, that because they pay so much attention to how we react to things, uh, using our body language and our emotional reactions to, to sort of set up how they might gauge theirs, and we uh, as a society, good grief, are an anxious bunch right now, that can't be helping. Oh, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, and that's what we talked about um, at the webinar, that uh, parents need to remain as calm as possible. Um, of course, it's natural for us to be anxious at this time. Uh, and anxiety is actually a good thing. It's a body's signal that something is not quite right mm -hmm. and that we need to take action. However, we have to keep it under control because... Um, if we do panic or if we do get too anxious, it is going to rub off on our children. And in particular, kids um, and adults with autism are more susceptible to getting uh, overly anxious. And so we as parents need to remain calm. Is it a combination, too, Grace, of the susceptibility to anxiety, perhaps in some cases combined with an inability to articulate the anxiety that creates real problems? Oh, yes, you're right again. Um, so the anxiety is a physiological thing, um, and so that's, uh, you know, the, the, the level of uh, the, physi the physiology in these children is different sure. um, many times. But also there's the difficulty with social communication, and so where most of us would be able to talk it out or work it out or problem solve or communicate how we're feeling... For many of these individuals, this is really difficult. And so they're, they're having this physiological reaction, but in addition to that, they're not able to discuss it or get a lot of relief from the communication that they have with others um, the way we normally do. I suppose a lot of it is age-specific, Professor Yorochi, but uh, how would, for example, if, you're, if you have a, a person in your life, a child as opposed to an adult on the autism spectrum who is uh, displaying or uh, exhibiting considerable anxiety, again, uh, uh, bouncing off of, of the level, that level of energy in the population, if nothing else, how, uh, give us some tips and techniques for 
for for actually being calm and uh, and uh, allowing that calm to flow out of us into other people. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, um, you know, uh, some of the things that um, typically work uh, when we're not dealing with COVID nineteen, but but you know, we we don't realize that we're doing it, but we. We are always under some level of stress, um, and so we we often manage this by um, keeping ourselves grounded. That is, um, focusing on things that we know we have control over. Mm-hmm. We certainly don't have control over everything in our lives, but we have to think about and maybe even more concretely now make a list uh, for ourselves about what are the things I can control. I cannot control COVID-19 or some of the things that are happening that we hear in the media. However, some of the things that are happening in my own home, uh, with my children, um, you know, schooling at home, for example, there are some things that I can do um, that can help me feel more in control. So that would be one thing. Maintaining a schedule, although different now, um, is very important. Um, getting up at a certain time, having some goals during the day that I want to accomplish. And it may not be um, many things that I get accomplished because things are definitely different now. Right. But as long as I feel like I'm moving in uh, a positive direction, uh, again, that will help me stay more calm and relaxed and um empowered feeling like hey i'm getting some things accomplished here so creating and then reinforcing routines is very important absolutely absolutely yeah it it will be new routines sure um you can't you know one of the things we discussed at the webinar it's 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 not a good idea to be too rigid about wanting to maintain a routine for your children like they had when they were going to school. Of course. Um, because that's not going to be um, the same. Um, however, having routine and having structure for kids is very important. Um, that's what helps keep them grounded and um, helps them see that, okay, um, things are different, but there's still something that I know th- that I can expect that is predictable. Yes. Um, so they feel good about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, our guest, uh, Professor Gracie Orochi from uh, Simon Fraser, hosted a webinar this past Wednesday on autism, anxiety, and COVID-19. Lots of participation, Grace. And if so, what were parents, uh, when you got to the Q&A portion, what were they asking you about? Yeah, we had a great turnout. Um, so good that, in fact, um, we're probably going to do it again. Good. So uh, it was in collaboration with uh, Autism Community Training, which is a wonderful nonprofit organization that helps parents throughout the province. Um, the webinar is uh, videotaped and available on their website, on YouTube. And uh, yes, so the parents were um, uh, asking about, you know, how, how do they talk to their children about illness and death? Um, they were asking about, what do they do uh, now that they have to deal with um, schooling at home? Many of these children had, um, in addition to schooling, behavioral interventions. Mm-hmm. And so they're worried about what happens when the programming for their behavioral intervention now breaks down. They don't have um, ongoing support with uh, behavioral consultants and interventionists who work with their children, right. often in the home, directly face-to-face. 
So there were lots of questions um, that we tried to answer. Um, again, you know, things are different, but there are still things we can do. There are some solutions to these sorts of issues um, that um, will help parents um, feel a little better about what's going on. Also, um, we discussed um, how the ministry can help, the Ministry of Children and Family Development, Ministry of Education, Ministry of Social Development. These are all ministries involved sure. in, in supporting these families, and so they need to communicate with these families help them just like the government of Canada is helping all of us with relief uh, during this period. They need to communicate with these families about what they're doing to help them. And ha- um, have families, have you noticed uh, as a pro in, in, in the field, have you noticed any ramping up of resources on any of the aforementioned ministries parts? Not as much as I'd like to see, um, but certainly there has been some communication by some of the ministries. I believe uh, the Ministry of Children and Family Development can do a little more in that department in that um, they've been a little slow um, getting the word out to families about what they're doing. I'm sure they're very busy and sure. still discussing things. However, um, more communication and uh, a little bit more direction in terms of being adaptable um, with funding um, and with uh, how parents can use funding, um, how long um, they can use that funding because the funding runs out um, in May for some of these families, depending on the child's um, age, uh, birth date. And so there's a lot of things that parents are worried about and, and, and wondering about, but their answers still haven't, um, they haven't been answered yet. Well, hopefully they'll be a little more forthcoming in the days ahead because there are still, unfortunately, many of those ahead of us all. Professor Grace Urochi, please keep up the good work and thanks for taking some time with us this morning. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Sterling. It's our pleasure. And if you'd like to see uh, Professor Urochi's webinar, Google Autism, Anxiety, and COVID-19, it's on YouTube. I'm Sterling Fox, joined on the line by not one but two lawyers. Both women are with the Vancouver firm Lindsay Kenny. Angela Thiel is a partner who specializes in family law. Pamela Lindsay is with the firm's commercial group. She is an associate who does a lot of work in real estate. Ladies, good morning, and thank you for being with us. Happy to be here. Good morning, and Angela, I'd like to start with you, please, because uh, I'm, I'm curious that you're the family lawyer in this pair, and uh, I'd, I'm concerned about what people are calling you about most. We've been all locked up and cooped up and asked to stay at home for several weeks now, and a lot of problems are pending. What are your clients most concerned about? Uh, the saddest part for my clients is some of them aren't being able to see their children, um, access supervision services, which are people that assist when there's difficulty in a family, are in a, essentially um, non-essential, and, and they're just not doing it. I've got some families that are just not, or you know, one parent isn't seeing their kids. I've also got some good news in that some services out there that help families like this have been working above and beyond to make sure that they can see their children uh, to provide uh, help in terms of setting up online services for families, uh, the use of Zoom and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the first major problem that's most frustrating because, unfortunately, when uh, crises like this occur, sometimes it 
brings out the best, but unfortunately sometimes it also brings out the worst. And so someone who isn't interested in facilitating parenting time for another parent can just simply say, no, I can't really go to court that easily, and I just have to counsel patients. And, uh, you know, I can't sometimes reach other lawyers who aren't uh, working uh, during this period of time because the courts are closed and, and there's not an awful lot that we can do. Well, that was my next question, Angela. Are the courts essentially closed? Well, it, there are urgent matters that the court will hear you on. So they've um, recently just get, given us a guideline of what they will hear. Uh, the problem is that uh, there's limitations. Things have to be done in writing. So you have to send a request to hear uh, hear yourself or mm-hmm. have, have a, a matter heard. And the court will decide whether they think it's urgent enough to deal with it. Um, and so for a particular family... Their matter may be very urgent to them, but to deal with scarce resources and problems of, you know, what else is coming down the pike that we have to leave ourselves available to hear. So it's imperfect. Um, I certainly have been telling people that I don't think it's worth trying to get to court right now at this time. Again, we have a lot of arbitrators and mediators that are using um, services like Zoom to hear arbitrations and mediations. But unreasonable people sometimes really need to see a judge, and that's something that's not there for them, not there for their opposing party right now. Interesting stuff, Pamela Lindsay. Good morning to you. You're with the you're with the commercial group over there at Lindsay Kenny. What are your clients most concerned about these days, Pamela? Um, well, I, a lot of my clients are small or medium-sized businesses, sure. so I'm dealing with both the landlord side and the tenant side. That's kind of a big pressing issue, especially with uh, April 1st just passing by. Right. Um, on the landlord side, I have a lot of clients asking me, trying to take a proactive approach. They're, they're not living in a bubble. They understand that their tenants are probably going to be running into issues um, paying rent. Either they just did or they will be soon. Um, so a proactive approach of how to deal with that, how to basically avoid the headache of all of their tenants defaulting. And then on the tenant side, um, tenants panicking. I think the biggest concern right now is that we just don't know when this is going to end. So it's not a situation of like, oh, well, just um, tighten your shoelaces for the next couple months. There's just, there's not really, there's no known end. So trying to look at the contracts, trying to look at the leases, there's a force majeure is a really hot word right now. A lot of clients are asking me to take a look at that to see if it applies. Yeah. So. What, what is that? What does that mean? I've, I've heard it and I've seen it in print a few times, Pamela. What is force majeure? Force majeure is a pretty old clause for, um, that generally you'll kind of find hidden away at the back of most agreements and it, um, embedded in the boilerplate. Basically, if some sort of event were to happen that were to cause a delay or to cause um, the main purpose of the contract to not be able to be achieved, then the contract can either be delayed by that amount or, um, or be terminated, depending on the language. The problem is that we ha- the courts haven't looked at it in a long time um, from my review of the case law. And so when you're looking into how to interpret these clauses, there's just not much guidance. And people haven't really turned their mind to them in a long time. So Ah, so force majeure could, at least in theory, Pamela, provide an out for some contracts. 
Potentially, but it really varies um, from case to case. So I, I strongly recommend that um, you have your lawyer take a, a look at it to see if it applies to your situation. Now, Angela said from the point of view of family law, the courts are all but closed, but the process of mediation that is available to some in dispute is going forward via Zoom and other uh, platforms. What about uh, real estate and, and commercial law? Are the courts simply, again, closed to all? And are there any online access points? I understand that um, that I, I don't believe that for the majority of situations that they would, that uh, real estate situations would qualify as an urgent matter. Okay. There are some situations, I think, beforehand, if a foreclosure is in place or already was implemented, um, that, that that might be considered. But for the most part, no. Um, when my clients are, uh, my landlord clients, for example, are asking me what they can do under commercial leases and whether or not they can sue their tenant for breach, mm-hmm. I'm telling them that no, that doesn't really seem to be an option at this point. You can mediate, you can um, turn to arbitration clauses, and as Angela said, there is op- online options for those. But, um, but my 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 recommendations to my clients, especially at this point, is just to try to communicate as much as possible and and really try to avoid. Um, conflict if possible and try to work together to come for, to a solution it's just it's just a cheaper option at yeah, this point exactly and i need to take a break here but just before we do that i mean the takeaway from this segment especially with respect to landlords and tenants pamela has to be reach out to each other attempt to establish some measure of communication which allows for some negotiation some expression of good faith to occur so that it's not a war we're all we're all recommending in every area. Do not take a hard line right now. This is not the time to be a jerk. Very succinct. Can't make support payments. Have no money. What can I do? So that's been coming up a lot as well. Um, we have been saying to uh, parents, reach out to the other parent. Um, let them know what's going on. Um, doctors, dentists, people of that sort, they can't make the payments. We'd be basically saying, look, we'll just defer payments or we'll pay what we can or, you know, let's see what we can do to borrow. Um, because we have a lot of you know, ability to defer mortgage payments and things of that sort, there's a lot of government assistance. We're saying, look, pay your child support rather than paying your mortgage because you can, you, you've got an option there and, and your, your partner doesn't. You know, they have to pay rent. They have to feed the kids. Right. So again, uh, it was a great. There was a great ad while we were on um, uh, break saying, "In times of adversity, we have to work together." Well, that's what one hopes people are doing. Interesting, Pamela. Just as banks will charge interest on those deferred mortgage payments that Angela was just referencing, if you're a landlord, can you and you have now past due rent? Will landlords be adding interest to those past due rent payments, or just be happy to collect what they're owed? I think, I think it will really vary um, from situation to situation. Um, and you'd have to look at the specific lease, but most leases provide that any sort of amounts owing past a due date, the landlord does have the option to up, to charge some sort of interest. Usually it's pretty high, 15 to 18%, to try to defer people, um, deter people from um, not paying their rent. In the situations that I've seen, lots of my landlord clients are lowering that amount to, I think, essentially cover their costs or right. the costs that they're incurring from the bank. So bringing that down to 4 to 6% or whatever it may be. I think um, the thing that tenants need to consider um, with deferred rent is the fact that essentially the landlords are loaning them that money for 
what, at three to four months or whatever period it may be. And although they can go to the bank and get their mortgages deferred, the more, the, as you mentioned, the banks are also not waiving interest. So, um, so everyone kind of has to work together with sharing that cost. Okay. Uh, open up the phone lines earlier as well. Holly's on the phone. Good morning. Good morning. I have a question. So I, I, one of the lawyers, I didn't quite catch on why the comment was, this is not the time to be a jerk. I've got a good friend who is a landlord and has uh, two tenants and uh, received a text not too long ago that said, oh, by the way, I'm not paying rent for a while, so you better go to the bank and figure out your mortgage. And so I, so in communication between the two of them, they are both working. They both have a job. One of the, the one party said, uh, got a letter somehow from his employer saying he was laid off. And um, then a text went out saying, oh, by the way, no, we're only paying half the rent. And we did some investigating and the person is not laid off. He self-quarantined for two weeks. And so we've got some things to deal with there. So when you got a tenant who's saying, um, mm, no, we're not going to pay rent for, uh, for a while. Right. Uh, what do you do then? Oh, good question. Pamela? I think in that situation, I'd, I'd recommend to the tenant to look into the various options that the B.C. government and the federal government are trying to give them with respect to support. So for B.C., I understand that middle of April, the B.C. government is implementing a program where I, you can apply to have $500 um, paid directly to your landlord to assist with rent payments. Um, I understand there's also, a, I think, $1,000 that you can apply to assist you during this time. It's it's unfortunate to hear that that the tenant's response is that, whereas it should be more, once again, the landlord and the tenant working together to try to come to some solution rather than one party dictating terms. Yeah, but okay, let, let's follow up on what Holly was asking about because you and I and Angela and everyone else is aware of the keep your rent movement. This is a, 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 this is a, a fairly widespread. It's very active on the internet. It's a, a, an alliance, if you will, of tenants across Canada who for a variety of reasons have decided to be jerks in some cases uh, and not pay their rent for the foreseeable future. Any advice for that crowd, Pamela? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, and well, I emphasize with both, like both sides, and I understand, especially on the residential front, that tenants do not do, do not want to be um, losing the losing their shelter in their home. Of course, um, it's. My concern with the keep your rent movement is the fact that it's not it's not just defer your rent and pay when able. My understanding is it's essentially we're not paying rent right. while while this is happening. You which, got it. Um, it. It's just it's a bit unreasonable. I I've been my perspective from the that the landlord should be eating that cost because as tenants are aware, they the landlords have their own mortgages, have their own um, expenses that they need to pay. So. Um, my, I, once again, my, my advice would be for landlord and tenant to try to work together to talk to each other to come up with a solution. Although BC right now has prevented, um, has stopped evictions, so tenants do have some security with respect to not being evicted at this time. Um, once this pandemic ends, which it will, they, 
they will be turning back to these landlords and the landlords will be seeking evictions at that point, depending on how how these last few months play out. Yeah, it's interesting so. because uh, this this whole notion of, of the removal of the ability to evict, and under the circumstances, one completely understands why that has been brought in. Nonetheless, uh, it's seen as uh, almost a, a measure of immunity for those who decide not to pay their rents because they know they're going to be sheltered at least for the, the next short term. Correct, but I, I would hope that tenants would keep in mind the short-term aspect of that and, um, and the fact that the, the, when this does end, there will be consequences to their actions. Um, even, if they, even if they move out on that landlord, they're never going to get a, a, a reference again. Of course. And if, people, if people can pay something, you know, they should pay it. Right. You know, no landlords, but, the, but to arrogantly say, as Holly's referencing, someone who has a job is continuing to be paid, to say, I'm just not paying. That's the type of person that will find themselves having difficulty with that landlord in the future and any landlord in the future. Well, there's going to be a flood of lawsuits at the end of all of this, presumably, of course, and we do know there will be an end to this. We don't know what it's going to look like yet, but we are hopeful and understanding that there will be an end and expect there's going to be an absolute blitz of, of litigation or do you, Angela, uh, suspect that? Or do you think between now and this is going to go on for months, we're well from out of the woods. Are people going to come to their senses perhaps a little more and try to be reaching out a little more reasonably? I, I think so. I mean, I've never considered litigation to be an answer to, you know, problems that are, you know, part of life that, that as we're seeing it now, I don't think that people want to end a pandemic and start suing people. Yeah. But, but I do think that everyone has to bear some responsibility somewhat morally for doing the wrong thing in a situation like this. Indeed. Um, if, if you, you know, it may be that they'll escape some legal responsibility, but I don't think it should make them feel good about themselves. Interesting. To uh, either one of you, and we've only got 30 seconds, we've talked about family law and Pamela's uh, commercial and real estate law. Very quickly, are the courts open for criminal emergencies? Oh, the courts are, are open for a number of emergencies. It's just a question of what is an emergency. So they're open for domestic violence issues. They're open for um, issues of uh, restraining orders, financial restraining orders, someone trying to take a child out of the jurisdiction. It's just the, the, ordin- the more ordinary uh, matters are being asked to wait. And as lawyers responsibly, we are has- asking our clients to wait. All right. You know, we- Angela Thiel and Pamela Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us this morning. A very, very uh, beneficial and interesting call. Uh, Very much appreciated, both of you. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.